Hello, NAFI members and flight instructors. John Niehaus, Director, Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors. And I am pleased, as always, to welcome you back to the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And uh, today I'd like to thank a brand new sponsor of NAFI and its members, and that's Flight Safety. Now, Flight Safety uh, is an amazing company. Um, They provide wonderful training, and they have some of the best instructors in the business. And uh, they are expressing their support for flight training, flight instructors, and uh, specifically NAFI and its members. So we really thank them for... uh, um, signing on to uh, to support us and uh, the various things that we do to support you. So um, j- please join me in thanking them and having gone to their facilities and uh, used their products for training myself. I can personally attest that uh, um, what they provide is just absolutely top-notch. So um, I hope you know that uh, no matter what you're instructing in, simulators, helicopters, gliders, seaplanes, primary training, advanced training, type ratings, whatever that is, we want you, we need you as NAFI members. We welcome you as members. So I hope uh, if you are not a member already, please join. And uh, you can do that by going to NAFI at NAFINet. Well, you can email us at NAFI at NAFINet.org or you can join at NAFINet.org. Um, additionally, uh, we are, uh, going to Sun Fun this year. So we haven't gone in a couple years and, uh, this year we are going to be there. So we're going to have a booth and, um, make sure you stop by if you're going to go to the show. Um, remember that NAFI members do get, uh, a discount to the entry into the show. And, uh, if you do come, come say hi. Remember that uh, there will be presentations by NAFI and its members as well, and those will all be highlighted as uh, as we get closer to the show. But uh, once again, if you're coming, come say hi. We'd love to meet you, and uh, it'll be it'll be a fun time for for all of us, especially for those of us in the north trying to uh, get a little warmth in Florida. So that'll be fun. Without further ado, today's podcast is uh, Teaching the Eights, Lazy Eights and Eights on Pylons. Now, we had a panel discussion a little while ago, and uh, it included my new friend, Jason Miller from LearnTheFinerPoints.com. Now, you've probably heard of Jason. Um, He has some amazing videos out there, and uh, um, overall, awesome guy, and Additionally, the rest of the uh, the panel are NAFI members and instructors who are just as amazing. Elizabeth Volgamore, Ned Parks, and Jim Pittman all joined um, to uh, to have a really good discussion on things, two maneuvers that instructors tend to screw up: lazy eights and eights on pylons. Um, and we didn't talk about uh, so much how to teach the maneuver, but where do we go wrong? And uh, I think it was a really interesting spin on a very traditional discussion, and I think you'll enjoy it. So once again, uh, Teaching the Eights with Elizabeth Vogelmore, Jason Miller, Ned Parks, and Jim Pittman. Enjoy. So today we're going to talk about a couple commercial maneuvers that tend to be very troublesome for students and sometimes even more troublesome for instructors to actually teach. Um, And these maneuvers are eights on pylons and lazy eights. 
So I've got some experts here and uh, I'll just kind of start down my screen. I have Jim Pittman from Phoenix, Arizona. I have Ned Parks from Akron, Ohio. I have Liz Vogelmore from Scott City, Kansas. And I have Jason Miller, who's uh, been able to uh, join us from his finer points uh, out of Grass Valley, California. Thanks, John. Welcome, everybody. So uh, let's start with lazy eights. This one, I think, is uh, is even more troublesome for pilots than eights on pylons. Um, where are instructors failing? Where where are we not getting ourselves up to snuff to be able to teach these students properly? And and Jim, you're a DPE. Let's start with you. Where what uh, what are you seeing out in the field? Well, thank you. Um, you know, I think uh, a good place to start for our whole discussion today is to understand that when we look at the airplane flying handbook and we look at the ACS, what we're looking at is the finish line. We're, we're looking for what it needs to be when we know how to do the maneuver and we're able to perform it. And too often, um, I think instructors don't know or just misunderstand the importance of the building block process that leads up to being able to do the final maneuver. Uh, it's one of the things I love about Jason's uh, material, everything he puts out on YouTube and his new ground school app is it, he really focuses on the exercises that lead up to, uh, you know, the end result, the end maneuver. Um, and I certainly have some opinions on that, but Jason, I'd love to hear, what do you, what do you think the building blocks are that lead up to a lazy eight? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, thank you, Jim. And I think, um, you know, for me, the, the longer I teach, it really becomes about that is like, what are we really trying to teach people here and getting away from that end result, getting away from the numbers. And I think with the lazy eight, they give us these fixed values. Like, you know, you're supposed to have maximum pitch up at the, at the 45 degree point and you should have X amount of bank. And then when you go through the, the horizon and the 90 degree point, you should have X amount of bank. And so you get people kind of flying it mechanically looking to achieve the results that are specified in either the airplane flying handbook or the ACS. When, when you just push that stuff aside and, and, and with the lazy eight specifically say, what we're really trying to figure out here is the overbanking tendency of the airplane, right? Let's, let's just pitch the airplane a little, let's bank the airplane a little bit, just the tiniest little bit, and then pitch up and watch what happens, right? Learn those secondary effects so that as you pull back and slow down, even without putting in any more aileron at all, the aircraft will have a tendency to overbank. Um, and the, with the lazy eight specifically, this is really the only maneuver that teaches us that. And for that reason, I teach this maneuver to privates as well. Even if we don't go through the whole maneuver, I teach them at least that concept, right? Like this is what we're trying to get out of this is that, and then as the airplane slows down, of course, we have to ha add a little more rudder to manage those left turning tendencies. But all of those things are disassociated from whatever the actual bank angles are at the 45 point or the bank angles at the 30 degree point. And we can we can put those details in later. Um, let's just figure out the, the general gist of what we're trying to learn to begin with, I think is key. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's, um, it's interesting. I, I, I struggled teaching this because, uh, and you said the word, Jason, the mechanics or the numbers. And I finally just gave up one day and I said, let's just go have some fun. Right. I didn't even tell the student what we were doing. I picked out the altitudes. I said, we're just gonna have some fun and, and it was so interesting. We got about the third pass and he went, uh, th these are lazy eights. I said, yes, they are. He goes, <laughs> I get it. He, he, that's when he got it. 
And then we went back and we said, okay, now let's, you know, as you point out the, the, the pedals and so on and so forth. And it, it just fell into place immediately. Now I take that maneuver anyway. I quit trying to make it so dig on hard and I just make it fun. And then once they figure out it's fun, then we go back and pick up the, the other piece. And then they, and then it just seems to fall into place, but I was making it way harder than what it was. And I had forgotten that it is fun. It is a fun maneuver. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a ton of fun. And I think like, if you make that investment early, like you said, it just comes together and that maneuver actually has informed over time the way I teach almost everything. I mean, John, you were asking um, earlier at some point, like where instructors might be going wrong or what are Mm -hmm. instructors missing, um, and I, I mean, I can't speak, of course, for any other instructors but myself, but for me, there's been a lot more of like when in the early hours, like in, in the zero to 25 hours of investing in this kind of stuff, like just covering the flight instruments with a piece of paper, getting people to look outside and say, watch what happens when I pull the throttle back, you know, and the nose falls and they just make that connection. Watch what happens when I put it in. Isn't that, you know, interesting, right? Not worrying about holding altitude, just trying to understand the way the machine flies. And I think if, here we're talking about the lazy eight but like if you make those investments early at the end of the day when you're trying to get with jim and pass a test or getting ready for that anyway stuff comes together much more quickly now liz what are your techniques have you uh, found anything that really works for you well actually the lazy eight is it is so much fun i forgot just how fun the commercial maneuvers are and um the building blocks aspect that they were talking about is so true and i think there's so many moving parts in the lazy eight that when you just sit down and show the student they're already overwhelmed by all of these degrees and all of these different banks that we have to kind of step back and say okay do you remember in the private working on just like a simple s turn and just using um what they already know and what they can relate to and then like step-by-step or piece-by-piece as they accomplish one, then you can keep adding to the maneuver. But it seems like initially when you start introducing all of the concepts together, it's just so overwhelming. They can't grasp it. So I completely agree. Just giving one piece at a time and mastering each step individually is so much more beneficial than trying to do it all together. Yeah, the the culmination of this idea actually came from a good friend of mine who's also a DP, Jason Blair. And Jason always used to say, because he did a lot of check rides at the university that I used to teach at, he always used to say, you can tell uh, on a check ride when their instructor didn't actually understand the maneuver, because (laughs) it's not that the student is doing the maneuver wrong. They're actually doing the maneuver exactly the way they were taught. The problem is, is they were taught by somebody who didn't actually know what they were teaching. Um, yeah. Jim, do you find that to be the case out there in Phoenix? Oh yeah, I, I agree with that. And I was just thinking, you know, remembering back to my own training in the early nineties, uh, commercial would have been mid nineties. I remember struggling with these maneuvers like most people do at first. And something that helped me early on is to visualize it in three dimensions. Um, one of Jason's videos where he talks about lazy eights, he actually goes out on the ramp and like, you know, put a 90 degree point out there, yeah. you know, and to actually do it. So good. If, <laughs> if you ask most commercial pilots, I would say it, if you ask most flight instructors what the ground track of a lazy eight is, most of them have probably never thought about it. And most of them, if they did think about it, would say, well, it's a figure eight, right? No, it's not. The ground track of a lazy eight is an S. Hmm. You know, we, we teach that it's a, 
180 degree one direction, then 180 degree another direction. But most people don't stop to realize that in three dimensions, it's an S and you never come back to where you started in space. So I think just understanding in three dimensions and then to break it down into the building blocks and this with what Jason was talking about of, of you know doing the exercises and the secondary effects of the controls. Before we start the lazy eight, let's just take half a lesson. It doesn't take much time for most people. And let's just get the plane trimmed and just pull back on the yoke. Don't do anything else. Just pull back on the yoke, feet flat on the floor. And what happens? Well, as you know, P factor increases the nose yaws to the left. Well, isn't that interesting? You've known that since private pilot training, but let's see it. You know, when we put in the aileron, yeah, the airplane rolls, we know that, but what's the secondary effect? It's called adverse yaw. Let's see it. You know, let's not correct for those secondary things that we're always correcting for. And once you have those building blocks and you can feel it in the controls and you understand what the maneuver is supposed to look like in three dimensions, then you can take it to the next step. Like, you know, let's just, let's just practice pitching up and pitching down. Uh, so there's another one I remember was confusing to me before I had the three-dimensional thing and all that. And I, this was confusing to my new students. I remember when I was a new instructor. In the book, the Airplane Flying Handbook, it accurately says that as your nose on the lazy eight, as it slices down through the horizon at the 90, you should be at your slowest airspeed. And I remember thinking, that can't be right because I'm in the middle of the eight. Wouldn't the slowest speed be when I'm at the top of the eight? But again, it's not about you know, you got to think of it from the view out the front of the airplane in three dimensions, as you go past the 45 and as the nose slices through the 90, that is the highest altitude of the maneuver. So of course that's the slowest speed. This stuff isn't really that confusing when you have someone that can break it down into bite-sized pieces. Uh, so Jim, based upon that, I want to go petition the FAA to rename this lazy S's. <laughs> there you go. Good, good luck well, getting the FA to change that. <laughs> yeah. And I really think that this goes back to what you were saying, Liz, about remembering the building blocks and what you said, Jim, just now about secondary effects. There is some phrase and I can't remember exactly how it's worded. And I don't remember if it's in, I think it's in the ACS, um, but it talks about the commercial maneuver, something where the pilot de demonstrates mastery of the flight control characteristics through various airspeeds or some complicated statement like that. But really what we're saying in all those maneuvers, whether it's a Shondell, Lazy 8, I mean, so many of the commercial maneuvers is, can you now like pat your head and rub your tummy? Can you pull mm -hmm. these things together? Can you, right. you know, can you deal with all of the secondary effects and the changing control forces to achieve a certain uh, result with the aircraft? And a lot of it is just building blocks. People ask me sometimes, why is it so much harder to do the lazy eight to the right? And I'm like, right rudder, remember? You need a lot of right rudder because it's a climbing right turn. And that's one little building block that just goes into this more complicated maneuver that we all know. But like when you put it all together, it can be overwhelming or feel that way. So, I mean, I know one of the big things that I always used to tell my students was, you know, if you think you're going too slow, go even slower because you're still going too fast. Um, because I, I used to see not so much my students, thankfully, but uh, you know, when, when talking to Jason and other examiners, that was a big common error for students because the instructors were rushing them through it. And then when the students were going sort of at the appropriate pace, but maybe even slightly too fast, because now they're nervous on a check ride, they're speeding up even more. 
And so getting them to even slow down more than necessary so that they can actually be at a normal speed on a check ride, um, I found was kind of one of those more profound things. So John, you're not, you're not just referring to airspeed, you're referring to them rushing the maneuver. Like exactly. their, their pace of doing exactly maneuver. step one through, you know, step 10, they weren't taking the time to properly do each step at, you know, a, a normal pace. They were rushing because the sooner they got through step 10, they thought the maneuver was over and they could move on. I, you just reminded me something. I haven't done this in years, but uh, back uh, in the late nineties, I was doing a lot of commercial training in the ASU program, we were using the yellow bonanzas that Lufthansa used back then. And bonanza is a fun airplane to do these commercial maneuvers in. And I used to tell them uh, to, to pretend that they're listening to violin music, like some kind of really beautiful orchestra violin music. Like you hear the violin music in your heads. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's just like this, like we're doing a waltz kind of thing. And uh, you know, there's a recommendation. It's so easy to plug things into an intercom. Now go find some nice, you know, slow classical music and, you know, one, two, three, four, one, two. I mean, cause it really is like a dance, isn't it? When you do it correctly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah also, and John, I thought you were talking about slow airspeed and it reminded me that I knew I do have a, like a number of students that get uncomfortable with the idea that they might accidentally stall at max pitch. Ooh, up. That's a good point. Um, when in reality, we kind of like should hear the stall horn there or, if you don't, it's okay, I suppose, but it's certainly normal to have the stall horn go off there at the, at the 45 degree point. And I think it's worth investing back to that investment with students where we're going to show you how this thing, this, this thing being the airplane, how this airplane behaves. Um, I think it's worth showing people that when you pick pitch up to that maximum pitch up and the stall horns blaring, if you begin releasing the yoke at that point and you're reducing the angle of attack and releasing and not pulling, even with the stall horn on, you're not going to stall the airplane. Right. So just kind of show them, even if it's just like Jim said, the first part of the maneuver, let's just go up to that max pitch up. Let's hear that horn. Let's just release it and feel like, okay, we're not, we're not going to fall out of the sky here at the 45 degree point. I think that'll help people get as slow as they need to be at that point in the maneuver. Those are all great points. And, uh, um, you know, in an effort to, uh, to condense time, let's talk about another maneuver that shares the same name in eight alone, but it's completely different. Um, let's talk about uh, eights on pylons. What, uh, what are we seeing here in that same sort of vein? Where are instructors failing their students? And uh, Jim, I'm going to start with you because you're a DPE again. And uh, where are you seeing people screw these up? Well, um, I'm going to connect my answer by by going to one that's important for all maneuvers, and that is being able to use a heading reference while looking 90 degrees. Mm. And this is another one that Jason is good at uh, teaching and demonstrating. I think that through private training, just by default, most instructors focus that heading references are on the nose of the airplane, which, okay, that makes sense. We're usually going that way. So let's find a heading reference that way. But when it comes to doing these commercial maneuvers, and really you can apply this to private as well, being able to have a reference at a 90 degree point and call that a heading reference and know what it means to have your, your wing pointing at the correct reference um, is a building block before teaching any commercial maneuver, um, but particularly the ones that we're talking about today. So going along with that, the first thing that came to my mind specifically is as a problem that I see with eights on pylons is people will be staring at their pylon knowing that they need to change their altitude and they're arbitrarily pitching up and pitching down while staring at their wingtip. 
And what I found is best is, and I'm really big about using the pitch reference on the windshield. Um, you know, Jason teaches the dry erase marker here in Phoenix. I've always been worried about how hot it gets. That yeah, it might do something to the plexiglass. So I just carry those little um, clear suction cups. Just put a put a suction cup in front of me and put a suction cup in in front of my client. And when I'm in teaching mode, and because uh, of course it's different on each side of the cockpit. So we call that the pitch reference. And your eyes should always be forward when you're pitching. You know, that's your control instrument, right? So, oh, I see I need to you know, pitch up based on glance out here, have a calculated input. Don't just arbitrarily be pushing the yoke forward and back while staring sideways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'll chase, chase everything around that way, right? You find people just chasing the pylon and then it just gets worse and worse. Divergent oscillations. Um, one, one thing, I don't know if you see this, Jim, but I've always thought that 80% of the success on eights on pylons depends upon picking the right pylons, right? And yes. the entry. You're getting it's the entry a, right now. Yeah, it's kind of a tall order. Like you have to pick two points that are um, with the wind flowing perpendicular to the center line, ideally, right? In a perfect world. And they have to be far enough apart so that when you cross at the midpoint on that 45 degree angle and pitch into it, you're not too far away from the pylon and you're not so close. Like it, it's really, you know, that's half the battle at least right there, picking the right spot. It's a test in judgment for sure. Yeah. And I think if, if people are listening, like going into check rides or whatever, I would have a few known spots, of course, up my sleeve that I mm -hmm. like know work for this. Like, so, so the, yeah. So I do it a little different. I don't pick the spots. I let them pick me. I, I tell them, do not look for a pylon. <laughs> I want you to pick a road that is the right reference to the, so I have my downwind where I need it. Yeah. And then I go in and you might pick a, a you might kind of aim for a crossroad or something, but I go in, I count to four, I make my turn. And whatever my wingtip finds becomes my pylon, as long as it's not a cow, because they move. <laughs> and then I come around, I come around, I, I cross my point, I count to four again, I drop my left wing or whatever the opposite wing is, whatever, whatever the wingtip finds is a new pylon. And I, the one thing I have found is the, the, the low profile pylons, quote unquote, are much easier to do the maneuver. I get, my eyes get all screwed up if I'm doing a water tower or a, or a silo. So I try to pick a, a crossroad. So whatever it gives me is what I use. I don't care if it's a house, corner of a field, a pylon's a pylon. It's just a reference point is all it is. Mm. That's all it is. I love that approach. That's really awesome. And you know, one of the things that jumps out to me about that approach, which is brilliant, is it really must force you to aim small because there might just be a tiny bush or something like who knows yes. what you're going to have, right? Yes. So you have to be really specific. I love that. Yep. Yep. Just take what it gives you. And then it always comes out right. I've never had it fail me yet. It's hmm. good. I'm going to try that. Liz, yeah, I'm definitely going to try that. That is a most interesting approach. Um, I think one of the easiest things to do is pick the wrong pylon or um, something that is too far or too close together. And that's just going to ruin the entire approach. So I'm actually going to try that. Hopefully maybe tomorrow. That's yeah, good. That's great. So I, I'm not going to look while we're live here, but a good homework assignment would be, of course, check the ACS. Um, you know, the airplane flying handbook is not gospel, but it is the way the FAA's recommended way to do things. Um, I think there might be something in the ACS that says that the applicant 
You got it right there. She's going to do it. I right do. Thank you. I have a question. <laughs> awesome. She came sure. prepared. Yeah. So, we uh, the, I believe there's something in there that says that the applicant selects pylons, but I don't remember it saying that they have it, to select them before you start the maneuver. Correct. And I, it, <laughs> so, it, that's yeah. correct, Jim. It so if you select them in the middle of the maneuver, them. okay. Okay. Very good. The, so here's what I teach my students. Select an area, obviously, that's not over congested. And then we're looking for you know, uh, cell towers, things we could run into. And then, and then, so I have them brief that and then go and pick the point, the quote unquote pylon. Everybody thinks because of the word pylon, it's gotta be tall. Doesn't, well, it can be yeah, short. Well, so I was gonna ask you, well, a couple of questions here is like, one is, have you ever entered that maneuver and found yourself not able to find a pylon or Jim as an examiner, I mean, what if the pylon ends up being so small that you as the examiner are like, wait a minute, you're looking at- <laughs> Which bush are you talking about? Strategy <laughs> like, what, what, what pylon are you looking at? You, you uh, got to pick a crossroad or a barn or house or a pool or, you know, a, a broken down RV in the backyard or something. Right. And I usually tell them that the first one should be just a crossroad. So kind of set yourself up for that first one so you have the right distance. The second one will find you, but even the first one's pretty simple. Yeah, and I'm not trying to find two that your... are certain distance. And oh my God, that gets to be a nightmare. Yeah. yeah well, oh, if the examiner doesn't know your pylon, then you can't possibly fail it because they don't know if you're doing it right. <laughs> well, I might have to tell me what pylon they're using. They tell <laughs> yeah, the and I, I would imagine that for you too, Jim. Like, let's say an applicant used the approach where they just let the pylons find them. At some point in the maneuver, you're going to say, what are you using, right? Yeah. Like, Correct. Using? Yeah. yeah. I, so I don't know what other DPs do, but um, what I found is, is usually the applicants are nervous and, and, you know, they're, they're trying to find just the right pylons. And I say, Hey, just, you know, let me know when you're entering the maneuver. Like, I really don't care that, you know, cause some of them want to go like, Oh, this is going to be my first pylon. I'm looking for one over here. I'm like, you know what? Just let me know when you're starting. Cause once right. they do the entry, I can tell if they're doing the maneuver correctly. And I'll be like, okay, that intersection's your pylon. Okay. You know? Um, another thing, and I'm not remembering exactly how it's worded in the ACS, but um, I don't think that there's anything that officially says we only do one lap and then the maneuver's over. It's kind of right. like, you know, turns around a point or S turns over road. So for any flight instructors watching this, teach your applicants to communicate with the examiner on the check ride and communicate with you as the instructor. Like, you want me to keep going until you say stop, or do you want me to do right. a certain number of laps? Um, because that's, it's not really cool on the check ride when they just do one lap and exit without me telling them to exit, <laughs> you know, it, right. it's supposed to, I, I believe it just says as specified by the evaluator or something like that. Well, especially if their first one wasn't perfect and you're giving them an opportunity to maybe go around again, just to see if it gets a little bit better. <laughs> Technically there's no do-overs, but the FA does say we're allowed to conduct further testing when the outcome was uncertain. So there, well, there you <laughs> go. That's the card we can play. <laughs> I imagine it must also help the student because to your point of students looking almost forever sometimes, for the perfect pylons ned if if you go into the maneuver and just pick one as you start it eliminates that extra time where in their head they're going oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god where's right. the pylon i don't know what i'm doing right. and then they screw it up because they're so stressed right. out about just finding it exactly or they pre-picked them and then they get out there and there's another airplane and so the ones that they pre-picked before the check right they now can't use Right. Or, or they're not as good as they thought they were from altitude and they're right. committed to using these things that aren't very good at right. all. No, right. right. Well, one of the keys to success with, with this technique that uh, Ned brought up 
is having a, a road. Yes. If, if this was just down the middle of the desert in Arizona, it wouldn't work so well. Correct. <laughs> you got you to have some kind of a dirt road or something yep. that doesn't have houses nearby and, yep. and have that solid reference perpendicular to the wind. Because then you can find the gate or, you know, the whatever, the bush, the tree, the, the something along the road. Well, and, I, go ahead. Yeah, and then that's your, that's your line for your 45 angle across it that's and the so next thing i, I was always bring them up. use yeah. a road they always have to use a, a road is usually the best so back to common errors and things that are maybe not taught as well as they could be um what i've noticed is um after they go around the first pylon knowing where to go wings level i've it, it appears that most applicants that I see are still looking at the pylon when they make that decision to go wings level. My opinion is that that should be a heading reference on the horizon uh -huh. that was estimated before the maneuver was even started. Kind of uh -huh. like having a 45 and a 135 on a lazy eight, have an idea. And it can be a little bit different depending on the wind. Um, you know, this isn't a typical ground reference maneuver, but knowing when to go wings level after a turn in an eight on pylon should be a reference way out on the horizon. And that's the key to having the correct distance with the next pylon or the yeah. original pylon if the evaluator wants you to keep going. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's like the setup for the next one really. Mm -hmm. and, and, and one of the other things I do is I have the student brief, I, I, I have them brief at the table how they're going to conduct this maneuver. So then there's no confusion as to how they're gonna quote unquote, find their pylons out there. Hmm. And then the examiner goes, oh, okay. Well, now I really wanna see it. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I'm all about having real open communication with examiners before, before we do anything really in doubt how we demonstrate power on stalls and, all sorts of stuff, how checklists are utilized. I mean, I'm happy to have my students talk to the examiners openly. That one didn't jump out to me as one I would <laughs> recommend doing that on, but if that's if that works out for you, I mean, um, yeah. I love it when applicants reach out to me before a test and ask questions or confirm the way they're doing something. I, I would much rather clear up any confusion days before than have surprises the day of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you guys, do you, do you all find that uh, students are rushing through uh, eights on pylons in the same way that they tend to rush through lazy eights? So is that a common error that you're seeing? I, I tend to think that that's a common error in almost all maneuvers. And yeah, uh, the analogy true. that I use with students, like uh, we all have played games of pool, you know, with the balls and the sticks. And I always say, look, you, you always wait till the balls stop rolling before you take your shot. You're not going to shoot while the balls are still moving. And, and if you don't let the airplane sort of, you don't slow down enough to let the airplane kind of settle into whatever it is you're doing. It's the equivalent of shooting pool while the balls are moving. Hmm. I mean, I find that that conversation comes up often at all phases of training in almost all maneuvers. So, you know, slowing down is always a good thing. So folks, final question. Um, are these maneuvers maneuvers that tend to lend themselves well to uh, debriefing software like Cloud Ahoy and some of the things that ForeFlight has? Is that a helpful technique for instructors to use when teaching these maneuvers? Well, um, ForeFlight specifically, I just got the subscription that allows me to do the 3D, oh, cool. um, which is really helpful and really cool. Um, so we can go out and re record you know, the lazy eights or eights on pylons or whatever the maneuver is. And then we can come back and see, 
our gain and descent. And it's actually a really neat tool to kind of bring all of that together. So um, when you're flying, the student is so focused on the maneuver itself, they don't actually get to enjoy that piece. So um, an ADS-V2 is pretty cool in that you can come back and do a debrief, but I have really enjoyed for flight and being, being able to kind of show the, the student, hey, this is what we did. This is what you look like. Um, so that's helpful, I think. Liz, have you found that uh, they pick up on the maneuver faster when you do it that way? Um, I think at any time you can allow them to see visually what they're doing. Yes, I would 100% agree that um, anything that's relatable or familiar to them um, and being able to see it. I thought when ADSB came out, how cool it was that we could, you know, do um, more private maneuvers because doing turns around a point or S turns, you're saying, hey, look, this is what you did when you get back. Um, I don't know. I think it's really helpful to be able to see that. I agree. It's, uh, I, I often say that I would have been such a better student if I would have had YouTube and Cloud Ahoy and GoPro. <laughs> I mean, there's so many tools now. Um, another, one of my favorite sayings is that we learn on the ground and we practice in the air. Mm -hmm. And if we're ever, as instructors, if we're ever expecting people to really learn and grasp, you know, concepts while the engine's running, we're not doing our job correctly, at least not effectively. <laughs> so any kind of recording device, uh, you know, well, for check rides, since we're talking about me being a DP, uh, the FAA highly discourages any kind of recording during check rides. But for training events, um, I one of my standard protocols, I always have a GoPro over the shoulder, uh, wired into the audio, especially for primary training. I mean, that audio uh, is sometimes worth more than what they see on the video. Uh, just be able to relax in their living room or their office and go back and watch stuff. So certainly for the maneuvers, any, any kind of recording device. And I don't know that a lot of pilots, you know, I, I think a lot of instructors have four flight. I'm not sure a lot of them are aware how easy it is for no additional money. You can take any flight track and hit the send to button and send it right to Google earth. Right. free app on your iPad. And right. if you're just a little bit, you know, paying attention during the flight to start and stop the record button on four flight, that right there, you can have bite-sized little pieces that you can quickly write on your iPad, throw into Google Earth and see in three dimensions. Now, of course, it's not perfect. It's from ADSB data, but it's pretty darn good. <laughs> you know, the other thing, John, um, on both of these maneuvers and many other maneuvers, um, it and is to do them in a simulator first. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I have, we have an ATD where I teach. And uh, if you have wingtip visual, which I do on one of the simulators that I have access to, then it's great for like eights on pylons. Yeah. But if you don't have wingtip, there's still other VFR maneuvers that you can get the student's head wrapped around what we're trying to accomplish. And uh, it, I, I think it's time and effort well spent before the maneuver, even the VFR stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, folks, while we wrap this up, any final points on either of the maneuvers that, uh, that y'all want to mention? Have fun. <laughs> yeah. Cover the instruments, please stop uh, staring at your instruments. Jason already said it, but let me put an exclamation point on that. Like, you know, cover it up with paper, throw a towel over the dash is something to get the primacy of getting them looking outside using multiple references and then uncover the instruments one at a time as needed. 
Yeah, and, and and that was maybe just one last thought on the idea of using um, external 3D tools to debrief, or um, sometimes I'll see flight training tools put cameras up on the tail of the airplane or whatever. Um, like in, in our product, the ground school app, we specifically avoid that and just keep the cameras inside. And the reason is, I think at the end of the day, people have to be in there. You're inside the airplane. You're not going to be riding on the tail and uh, you're not going to be flying behind the airplane in some 3D simulator. You are in the airplane. And so I would recommend that when using those tools, like the 3D view, or if you have a camera on the tail or whatever, make sure you've got something inside the airplane where you can make correlations. Like, oh, there I see the nose come down. What did that look like in the cockpit? Can I go back and see where I noticed that mistake and I can focus there more or focus there better? Um, at the end of the day, like Jim said, it should be less about the flight instruments and more about where do I look to get the information I need to fly this thing properly. That's all good advice. I, I really thank all of you for, uh, for being able to uh, participate in this. Just like everything else that we do at NAFI, so much of this is about the instructors that make up this group. It's, it's not about the organization. It's about all of the contributions to aviation education that you all make every single day. So I thank you for participating. I thank you for all that you do. 